What's holding your life together? Here are the glue rules once again. I'm not here to make you feel better. I am here to hopefully make your life better. Relational glue calls you to a courageous commitment to reality, the reality of your life. Not what you are wishing it would be right now, but what it is right now. Relational glue takes looking intently into the mirror of God's truth. Relational glue establishes boundaries to create safe relationships, yet stretches toward lofty spiritual goals. Relational glue helps you accept things you cannot change, change things you can, all the while gaining the wisdom to know the difference. Relational glue is measured in love, contribution, and moments of grace. Love means you gave everything you could without counting the cost or having expectations. Contribution means you strived to bring your best to every relational endeavor. Moments of grace means when you failed and darkness fell, a friend stood with you until the light dawned again. Let me tell you a story. So the other day, I found myself wandering into one of my favorite places, Chick-fil-A, and I thought, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to have today. Usually I'm a creature of habit when it comes to, to food like that, but I thought, I, I'm in the mood for something different. And so I saw this, this nice young lady at the cash register. Her name was Maddie, and I said, Maddie, let me see what I'm going to have. And she said, uh, yes, sir, how can I help you? And I looked up, and I saw this sandwich up on the board, and I thought, that looks like something I could do well with, a multigrain bun, and it's got lettuce and tomato. I love lettuce and tomato, but I'm going to have to do without, like, the cheese, and, and I'm not so crazy about that grilled chicken thing. What I really love are your chicken strips, and a vision of the chicken strips came into my mind, and then I had an idea. I will remove the middle of that sandwich, put in the chicken strips, and have a new Michael Simone Chick-fil-A special chicken strips multi-grain bun sandwich. And Maddie thought that was a, a good idea too, and she smiled at me, but she didn't know how to do that. And so she's looking and she's starting to punch buttons and she's trying to figure it out. She doesn't know how to make it happen. And I could see she was concerned because she wanted to give me the best customer service ever because if she did, then we would end up being in a TV commercial together like you have with the Chick-fil-A TV commercials where you sit on a couch and you hug each other and say, oh, you're so wonderful. I love you and I love you. And, and so a manager came over and he looked down and she said, this is what I'm trying to do. And he said this, he said, you're going to have to red flag it. And I looked at Maddie and I said, so I'm a red flag? And she said, yes, you're a red flag. I didn't want to be a red flag. I don't want to be anybody's red flag. I don't want to be red flagged. I don't want to red flag it. Red, a red flag, what does that mean? It means trouble. It means stop. Stop in the name of love before you break my chicken filet heart. Stop. It's like there's something wrong here. Wave the red flag. Don't go any further. All of a sudden I realized that I am a red flag. But they red flagged me. They got the sandwich. It all ended well. 
But this is, this is one of the dilemmas in life. You don't want to be a red flag relationally. You don't want to be a relational stopping point for somebody. But we end up being relational red flags. We don't make relational glue happen. We make relational red flags happen. And there's a place that we can go where we can learn not to be red flag people. The Bible is a book of relationship stories that weave wisdom into our lives. The Bible is a relational book written by a relational God. The minute you say, God so loved the world that he gave, you are in the essence of relationship. So what's holding your relationship life together? The truth is you can have all the answers and miss the relational glue. You can have all the answers and just be a bunch of red flags all over the place. You can have all the votes and miss the relationship glue. You can have all the points and miss the relationship glue. You can have all the bucks, all the bucks in the world and miss the relationship glue. You can have all the strategies and miss the relationship glue. One of God's answers to relational glue is wisdom. So today, let's talk about wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me and he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom though it cost all you have. Get wisdom though it cost all you have. Get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. When we watch the Olympics, we always like to see the, the ceremony that awards the medals, and they stand up on those pedestals, and the, the music plays, and the, the medals are, are bestowed, and you see the glorious, victorious moment. Wisdom brings that glorious, victorious moment into our lives. It's wisdom that bestows upon you a glorious crown that gives you a garland to grace your head. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom though it costs all you have. Wisdom will take you into the relational glue challenges that you're having right now in your life. And so I know one thing, because I know this for myself, I need wisdom, you need wisdom. So what is it? What is wisdom? James chapter three gives us a tight, pithy definition of wisdom. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, 
This should not be. And you think 2,000 years ago they didn't have the same problems that, that we have today? The only difference is, you know, they couldn't tweet about it. You know, we're tweeting all the time about this stuff. But the same problems with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with, the, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Who is wise? So James raises this great, this great question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, tongue in cheek, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So there's this wisdom that is worldly and it, to the world it seems like we're doing a wisdom thing, but we're not doing a wisdom thing at all. So now James is gonna define wisdom. He's gonna net it out for, for you and me. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, I love the way that this passage rolls out in the message. So let me read it to you in the message. With our tongues, we bless God our Father. With the same tongues, we curse the very men and women he made in his image. Cursings and blessings out of the same mouth. Do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Do you want to be counted wise, he writes? Here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way you live, not the way you talk that counts. Mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting that you are wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cunning, devilish conniving. Whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throats. Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life. The word holy is there in the scripture. Wisdom, God's wisdom begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings. Not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoy its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other. I like what Eugene Peterson did with putting those two words in there. Hard work. That's the relational glue stuff. It's hard work. Treating each other with dignity and honor. And so I looked at, at those words 
and, and I thought, is there any way to quantify this? Now, this is not scientific in any way, and there's no big test measurement thing that I'm trying to do here, but I, I just want you to try to get a window into your life, into your mind and heart right now in a very simple way. So I've put together what I call God's wisdom quantified. God's wisdom quantified. We're going to look at the first four words describing wisdom from James, uh, looking at the, the words that are used in the, in the New International Version. Then we're going to look at the, the second four words that are used. God's wisdom quantified. Here we go. The first word is pure. That's the word holy, as it was written originally in the first century. On a scale of then one to ten, how are you doing with being pure with being holy, in other words, thinking the way God thinks, trying to act in a situation like God would act in a situation. So if you say, well, I, I, I like to do that, and I pretty much try to do that, then you're going to score yourself somewhere between a 5 and a 10. If you go, ah, I, I usually sort of think the way I think, and then I, I backtrack it later on, then maybe you're a 5 or maybe you're a 3 or something. And again, no scientific measurement here. This is just for you and the person sitting next to you or the person you're driving home with. So you can have a discussion. These sheets are out at the, the Connection Center so you can pick them up after the service. So pure, holy, the way God thinks, the way God acts. Peace loving. Do you want peace to prevail? Do you want cooler heads to prevail? So are you high on that when you go to work during the day? Are you high on that at home? Are you sort of middle of the road on that, lower side of that? Um, considerate. Do you think about how other people feel? Do you, do you consider them first before you consider yourself? High, mid, low. Submissive. Now, this is a real interesting word. The wisdom from above, God's wisdom, is submissive. And for hundreds of years, People have tried to debate this whole idea of submissive. And usually they try to relate it to marriage. And, and they try to say, well, wives are supposed to submit to their husbands because it says wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, when really it doesn't say that at all. Exactly, it says this, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. And so you go, wives what? To your husbands as to the Lord. Wives take your husbands to Chick-fil-A, wives what? And uh, it doesn't say, because it says in the previous verse, submit ye therefore one to another as unto the Lord. So the submission was always supposed to go both ways. Later on it talks about husbands loving your wives uh, and, and giving yourself up for her. So this whole idea of submission, when you understand it biblically, it means if you want to be wise, then figure out how to submit. Figure out how to stop arguing. Figure out how to to think maybe the way the other person's trying to think about something or just just defer and say okay that's that's okay I'm going to submit to doing it that way because I think that maybe your idea is the right idea at this time in this place and that's not in in a marriage just in a marriage that's not just in parenting that's in the boardroom that's in the classroom that's in the small group that's in the bible study are you submissive? Let's go to the next four words. Full of mercy. Full of mercy. Do you, do you want to give mercy instead of, instead of bring like the hammer down? 
full of mercy. Do you want to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to give you another chance. Okay, we're going we're gonna to do over. We're going to try this. We're going to try this again. I'm going to give you the, the benefit of the doubts. Okay, you, you, you made a mistake. You didn't get it done. But let's give you the mercy side of the equation because wisdom is full of mercy. Good fruit. The Bible talks about good fruit as the works that you're doing to bring God's will and God's way into the world, to bring light into the world, to bring hope into the world. It's like uh, uh, the small group that Jeff was talking about in the video where they did the Christmas gifts for the family. That's what good fruit is, doing good things. When you bring medicine that we can bring to Togo, that's good fruit. Impartial. Impartial means you listen to both sides. You try to hear both sides. You you try to be neutral and understand the essence of what is really, what's really important. Uh, Heath's dad has been a, a judge for a long time, I think 35, 45 years. And he's retired this weekend. Heath's up in, in Ohio at the retirement celebration for his dad. And his dad would always say, firm but fair, firm but fair. And that's what impartial is. It's firm but fair, sincere. Sincere, coming out of the heart, coming out of a, a deep sense of humility and sincerity. So high, medium, low. And what I'm asking you to do is when you, when you do this little exercise later on, where you're high is just it's where you shine. It's where, it's where God is using you like a light. Where you're not high is where Maybe in the shadows of your own ego, you are, you are being a red flag, and you need to take a look at that. So identify one or two where you go, I think I'm a red flag right there. I think that's where I need to take a look at it. Or have somebody do this with you and say, where do I shine? Where do you see me as being a red flag? And then take that area. Maybe it's being submissive. Maybe it's being impartial or full of mercy. And then give it to God and say, God, in this area, I'm sort of running moderate to low, but I would really like to shine. Can you help me in this area of my life this year? Let me make this a goal for 2019 to get wisdom into my life in this area of my life this year. And God gives a great picture and and he fleshes out a definition of all this in one of the most famous chapters of the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Do you see how wisdom is woven in and through almost every one of those words? Do you see the relational glue that the Apostle Paul is talking about 2,000 years ago? And then he relates it to Jesus. In your relationships with one another, in this endeavor of relational glue, 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Why? Because God is wisdom. The wisdom is from above. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and, become, and becoming obedient by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so that's the embodiment of wisdom right there, what God did, who God is. We're going to go to verse 14. Paul brings it to a summary point. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Why did he say that? Why did he say do everything without grumbling or arguing? Because they were grumbling and arguing. They were being red flags in each other's lives. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Pure was in the definition of wisdom in James. Blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And so you see that God lived this out and he lived this out as the son and he left this as a legacy for us to live out so that wisdom can permeate every area of our lives. But we have to understand something in order to get there. This is a volitional choice. It's a volitional commitment. One of my favorite authors, as, is one of my, as he is one of my son's favorite authors, N.T. Wright, wrote this. One of my favorite quotes in his book, Simply Jesus, he commands his hearers to give up on their dreams and to trust his instead. This, at its simplest, is what Jesus was all about. He commands us to give up on our dreams and to trust his instead. This is what Jesus was all about. And so Jesus is, is saying, if you want wisdom, you've got to follow me volitionally. You've got to give yourself to me at a unique moment in time. And then you have to give yourself to me over and over and over again every day for the rest of your life. Here's the transition. We, we have defined wisdom. And we know we're supposed to get wisdom Though it costs us everything, we're supposed to get it. But we really are looking for something tangible as human beings. You know what it is that we're looking for? And I'm not sure if we're ever going to get it. But this is what we're looking for. I'm here to get validated. You. You are awesome. Excuse me? You have an amazing face. You've got powerful features, man. Anyone ever tell you that? Um, no. And listen, you look a little down, and it may seem like sometimes people don't understand you. But someday, man, someday, people are gonna see you for what you really are. You, you really think so? Absolutely. You are great. 
Need a validation, please? You. You are great, ma'am. You have amazing cheekbones. Really? If everybody wants validation, why is it so hard to get? You want validation today. You are great. You look fantastic, but that's not enough and it never will be enough because we all know that working with you is killing me. Now, I'm not saying that literally today as your pastor, just the title of the sermon. Working with you is killing me. How do you deal with that, really, this sense of you want to be validated for something and yet working with you is killing me? The book puts it this way. There's probably someone at work whose behavior drives you crazy. It may be a chaotic coworker, an obnoxious boss, an unruly employee, an inept department, or an impossible client. Whoever it is, interactions with this person or group of people set you off. Their conduct rattles your nerves and upsets your day. You've probably imagined how great life would be if you could eliminate this workplace irritant. You dream of the day when everyone simply does his or her job without incident and no one invades your space. Dream on. Let's explore the two faces of business. On the surface, business is about making money, delivering goods and services, and producing results. Scratch the rational surface of any company, however, and you uncover a hotbed of emotion, people feeling anxious about performance, angry with coworkers and misunderstood by management. You find leaders who are burnt out and assistants who are buried in resentment. And so what you really end up with is all these different roles that people end up playing. They wanna be validated. They wanna be told that they're, they're okay. And, and, but you're probably never gonna get that because it only comes really from another place. And we end up getting all tangled up in these roles that we play. We don't run our businesses and sometimes and or our churches by wisdom. We end up running them by these roles we play. And it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. It will never work. Let me tell you about the roles. The hero. The hero is the Marvel hero of the workplace. He or she shoots the gap, saves the day, overachieves, and always solves the problem. Ta-da, the hero is here. The caretaker is the counselor of the workplace, helping you solve your problem even when it enables you. The rebel scapegoat, the nonconformist of the workplace, bends the rules, runs out of bounds, challenges authority, shoots own foot, bucks the system, wants, bucks the system, wants the different kind of sandwich, is the red flag, that's the rebel scapegoat. The martyr, professional sufferers of the workplace, seeks recognition and praise for sacrifice and suffering on behalf of the company, offloads guilt to others for not doing the same. If you're kind of feeling a little guilty and you don't know why, you may have been hanging around a martyr a little too long. The entertainer, the crowd pleaser of the workplace, uses games, humor, antics, engaging behavior to break tension and keep others positive, may be genuine or may border on superficial coping skills and miss reality altogether. The peacemaker, the diplomat of the workplace, very well liked, peace at all costs, may avoid facing reality or defer necessary change, wants everyone to get along. The invisible one, the unseen of the workplace, masters the art of flying under the radar, head down, lip sealed, 
stays out of the spotlight, and stays out of the drama. You may invisible yourself right out of a job. There are different kinds of expressions that roll in and through and between these roles. You can have an exploder who starts out dynamic and then turns into dynamite, starts out, we're driving toward this goal, then blows up when we're not getting to the goal. The empty pit starts out very nice, very nice, maybe meek and mild, turns to very needy, and so you can never do enough for this empty pit person. The saboteur starts out as sweet talk, always saying nice things, it seems, and then turns, flips the, the, the drama into sabotage, kind of behind your back. The pedestal smasher starts out as fawning, overly respectful, turns into nitpicky fault-finding about just about everything you do. The chip on the shoulder starts out being appreciative, thankful, you know, happy to be on the team, turns argumentative, challenges every decision, challenges authority. All of this stuff is not based on wisdom. It's not based on understanding where you have to identify your growth edge, where you have to identify where you are already a light, but where you are kind of a shadowy person and how God can bring that to a better place in your life. And so what, why the Bible says, get wisdom. So though it costs all you have, get understanding is because your life depends on it. Let's tell the truth. We are never going to be validated as much as we want to be validated. That's for four-year-olds. That's for three-year-olds. That's for grade school kids. At some point, the game changes and the game shifts. And it starts to become about competition. It starts to become about judgment. It starts to become about political maneuvers. And that's what adult life is about. And the only way that we get out of that game is by really living as men and women who are following Jesus Christ and don't want to live at this altar of validation, but are willing to live at an edge of wanting wisdom with all their hearts, with all their minds, with all our hearts and with all our minds. There are 10 shoulds that got to go. When we start wanting to live for wisdom, these shoulds have to go. Let me tell you about the shoulds that got to go. I should only have to say it once. They should behave the way I do. They shouldn't make mistakes. I shouldn't have to be their parents. They should know how to prioritize their work. They should know what I need. They should like and appreciate me for all I do. They should know that I appreciate them. They should get along with one another. They shouldn't challenge me. And that one final one that is so often a should, they should do their job. They get paid for that. And working with you starts to kill me and working with me starts to kill you when we let these rules and these roles just suffocate us, instead of, instead of embracing the wisdom that can only come from him, that can only come from this deep, intimate, dynamic walk with Jesus Christ. And that is hard work. It's hard work to build the relational glue that the church requires, that your business requires, 
that your family requires, that your classroom requires. Today, today we're going to end not with a letter, but with a reading from one of my favorite books. I kind of keep this next to my Bible. Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. That's the book. Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them by John Orberg. And he wrote this. The longing to attach and connect, to love and be loved, is the fiercest longing of the soul. That need will not go away even in the face of all the weirdness. An infant lifts up her face hopefully. She holds out two stubby little arms in her desire to be held. At the other end of the spectrum, a widowed man falls in love. He proposes. She accepts. He is 84. She is 81. It is her first marriage. She kissed dating goodbye during the Truman administration. Call it a tribe, call it a network, call it a family. Whatever you call it, you need one. Edward Hallowell, a senior lecturer at Harvard Medical School, speaks on the basic human need for community. He uses the term connection. And you hear that term a lot around Spring Branch, connect, connect, connect. We even have a Welcome Connect Center out in the lobby, connect. We talk about that with faith and life classes, with small groups, connect. The sense of being part of something that matters, something larger than ourselves. We need face-to-face -face interactions. We need to be seen and known and served and do these same things for others. So it's not just a validate me, see me, know me, serve me. It's I'm a part of something bigger than myself. I'm part of a community. And the person who runs the community is Jesus. He's asked me to be a part of that. With God's peace in offices and corporate boardrooms, executives would secretly scheme to help their colleagues succeed. They would compliment them behind their backs. Tabloids would be filled with accounts of courage and moral beauty. Disagreements would be settled with grace and civility. Churches would never split. No one would be lonely or afraid. People of different races would join hands. They would, they would honor and be enriched by their differences and be united in their common humanity. And at the center of the entire community would be its magnificent architect and most glorious resident. God has not given up on his dream. But for God to have his dream, he needs us to get wisdom get understanding, though it cost us everything. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, though it cost all you have. You don't have to be a red flag. You don't have to play the roles. You don't have to get caught up in somebody else's game. But you do, you do have to get wisdom. The wisdom that is from above. Dear Heavenly Father, guide us into wisdom. Squeeze us out of these roles that demean us and defeat us and bring so many red flags into the, the dramas of our lives. Oh, Heavenly Father, just pull us back from that and give us these moments of glory when your wisdom prevails, when your wisdom saves the day, when your wisdom brings peace into a family, peace 
into a company, peace into a classroom. Oh, Father, allow us to seek you each and every day to know that that's what you desire most of our hearts, that they seek after you. In Jesus' name we